Section 3 of Natural Science and Religion by Asa Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lecture 2. The Relations of Scientific to Religious Belief. Part 1. In a preceding discourse, I brought to your notice a series of changes in view and opinion which have taken place among scientific men within my own remembrance. I restricted the survey to the biological sciences, with merely a reference to the principle of the conservation of energy in its application to the organic world, and in these, to the supposed facts and immediate inferences, to what may be called their natural historical interpretation. These new views are full of interest of a kind which you cannot expect a naturalist to undervalue, for they have greatly exalted his calling. In the days of Linnaeus, who died only a hundred and two years ago, and throughout a long generation of his followers, species were looked upon as simple curiosities of nature, to be inventoried and described, and striking phenomena in plants and animals as something to be wondered at, but not to be explained. With the advent of morphology, the precursor and parent of evolution, natural history developed from a curious pursuit, training the observing powers, to that of a true science, engaging the reason in the search for causes. According to one definition, quote, science is the labor of mind applied to nature, close quote. In this sense, modern botany and zoology have certainly become scientific. They are at least attempting great labors. But in widely extending, as they now do, the operation of natural causes in the organic world, they make close connections between biology and physics, or what used to be called, and I think deserves to be called, natural philosophy. And the connection brings in, or brings up afresh, considerations which affect the ground of natural and revealed religion. Under this aspect, they properly excite your anxious attention. I used throughout the phrase scientific belief as the one best suited to the occasion. The term is comprehensive and elastic, covering many degrees of conviction or assent, from moral certainty down to probable opinion. In this respect, scientific and theological beliefs are similar, as they also are in being mainly states of mind toward that which is incapable of demonstration either because, as in the case of ultimate beliefs, on which all science and knowledge are based, it is impossible to go beyond them, or else because the subject matter is not positively known, and certainty is unattainable from the nature or the present conditions of the case. The proofs upon which both biological and theological investigations have to rely are largely probabilities, some of a higher, some of a lower order, and much that is accepted for the time is taken on trial or on prima facie evidence. Much also is, or should be, held under suspense of judgment, a state of mind eminently favorable to accurate investigation. As to those who can forthwith assort the contents of their minds into two compartments, one for what they believe and the other for what they disbelieve, neither their belief nor their denial can be of much account. In all subjects of inquiry, those only are to be trusted who discriminate between inevitable beliefs, established convictions, probable opinions, and hypotheses on trial. Now, our general inquiry in this lecture is, what should be the attitude, I will not say of theological students, but of thoughtful men, in respect to scientific beliefs, tendencies, and anticipations such as we have been considering? To a certain extent, it may well be a waiting attitude. The strictly scientific matters must necessarily be left mainly to the experts, whose very various and independent investigations, pursued under every diversity of bias, must in time reach reasonably satisfactory conclusions but the naturalists claim no monopoly in the consideration of the great problems which now interest us, in which indeed most of them decline to take any part. 
perhaps theological students and divines might be asked to wait until views and hypotheses still ardently controverted among scientific investigators are brought nearer to a settlement but the disposition to discount expected results either for or against supernatural religion has always prevailed the theologians at least have never waited and cannot be expected to wait and while some of their contributions to the subject have been inconsiderate others have been most valuable in any case there is no call to wait on the ground that the disturbing views are only hypotheses for in the first place we should have long to wait for demonstration one way or the other and one crop of hypotheses is the fertile seed of another besides hypothesis is the proper instrument for dealing with this class of questions indeed it's the essential precursor of every fruitful investigation in physical nature you can seldom sound with the plummet while standing on the shore to do this to any purpose you must launch out on the sea and brave some risks nearly all valuable results have been gained in this way newton's theory of gravitation was a typical hypothesis and one which happened to be capable of early and sufficient verification the undulatory theory of light was another the nebular hypothesis or portions of it and the kinetic theory of gases less verifiable are accepted willingly because of the success with which they explain the facts evolution is a more complex loose and less provable hypothesis or congeries of hypotheses which can at most have only a relative though perhaps continually increasing probability from its power of explaining a great variety of facts its strength appears on comparing it with the rival hypothesis for such it is of immediate creation which neither explains nor pretends to explain any how the more exact physical sciences are becoming more reconditely hypothetical especially in the imagination of entities of which there can be no possible proof beyond their serviceability in explaining phenomena we must not stop to consider only this may be said that the adage quote, where faith begins science ends close quote, is now well-nigh inverted for faith in a just sense of the word assumes as prominent a place in science as in religion it is indispensable to both let it be noted moreover that the case we have to consider does not come before the tribunal of reason with antecedent presumptions all on one side as theologians generally suppose they say to the naturalists not improperly we will think about adopting your conclusions contrary as they are to all our prepossessions when they are thoroughly and irrevocably substantiated and not till then your theory may prove true but it seems vastly improbable here the naturalist is ready with a rejoinder in this world of law you cannot expect us to adopt your assumption of specific creations by miraculous intervention with the course of nature not once for all at a beginning but over and over in time we will accept intervention only when and where you can convincingly establish it and where we are unable to explain it away as in the case of absolute beginning if the naturalist starts with the presumption against him when he broaches the theory of the descent of later from preceding forms in the course of nature so no less does the theologian when in a world governed by law he asserts a break in the continuity of natural cause and effect but indeed you are not so much concerned to know whether evolutionary theories are actually well founded or ill founded as you are to know whether if true or if received as true they would impair the foundations of religion and surely if views of nature which are incompatible with theism and with christianity can be established or can be made as tenable as the contrary it is quite time that we knew it if on the other hand all real facts and necessary inferences from them can be adjusted to our grounded religious convictions as well as other ascertained facts have been adjusted it may relieve many to be assured of it the best contribution that i can offer towards the settlement of these mooted questions may be the statement and explanation of my own attitude in this regard and of the reasons which determine it 
I accept substantially, as facts, or as apparently well-grounded inferences, or as fairly probable opinions, according to their nature and degree, the principal series of changed views which I brought before you in the preceding lecture. I have no particular predilection for any of them, and I have no particular dread of any of the consequences which legitimately flow from them, beyond the general awe and sense of total insufficiency with which a mortal man contemplates the mysteries which shut him in on every side. I claim, moreover, not merely allowance, but the right to hold these opinions along with the doctrines of natural religion and the verities of the Christian faith. There are perplexities enough to bewilder our souls whenever and wherever we look for the causes and reasons of things, but I am unable to perceive that the idea of the evolution of one species from another, and of all from an initial form of life, adds any new perplexity to theism. In unfolding my thoughts upon the subject, I wish to keep as close to the solid ground of nature as I possibly can even where the discourse must rise from the ground of science into the finer air of philosophy. Specially, I must heed the injunction, quote, If thou hast any tidings, prithee deliver them like a man of this world, close quote, and not trouble myself, nor you, with metaphysical refinements and distinctions which, however needful in their way and place, are unnecessary to our purpose. I take for granted, like a man of this world, the objective reality and substantiality of what we see and deal with, though I am told it cannot be proved and i assume although demonstration is impossible that what i and my fellow-men cannot help believing we ought to believe or at least must rest content with i suppose you will agree with me that it is not science at least not natural science which raises the most formidable difficulties to christian theism but philosophy and that it is for philosophy to surmount them the question which science asks of all it meets is what is the system and course of things, and how is this or that a part of it in the fixed sequence of cause and effect? Philosophy asks, whence the system itself, and what are causes and effects? Theology is partly historical science, and partly philosophy. Now I, as a scientific man, might rest in the probability of evolution as a general inference from the facts or a good hypothesis, and relegate the questions you would ask to the philosophers and theologians but i am not one of those who think that scientific men should not concern themselves with such matters and having gone so far as to say that the evolution which i accept does not seem to me to add any new perplexity to theism and well knowing that others are of a contrary opinion i am bound to further explanation and argument but i have not the presumption to suppose that i can make any new contribution to this discussion and what i may suggest must not be expected to cover the ground widely nor penetrate it deeply I am sure that you will not look to me for the rehandling of insoluble problems and inevitable contradictions, into which the philosophical consideration of the relations of nature and man to God ultimately lands us. Certainly they are not peculiar to evolution. So, insofar as we may fairly refer any of its perplexities to old antinomies, which can neither be reconciled nor evaded, the burden will be off our shoulders. It might suffice to show that evolution need raise no other nor greater religious or philosophical difficulties than the views which have already been accepted and held to be not inimical to religion. But, indeed, our universal concession that nature is, and that it is a system of fixed laws and uniformities, under which everything we see and know in the inorganic universe, and very much in the organic world, have come to be as they are, in unbroken sequence, implicitly gives away the principle of all ordinary objection to the evolution of living as well as of lifeless forms, of species as well as of individuals. It leaves the matter simply as one of fact and evidence. Indeed, mediate creation is just what the thoughtful and thorough observer of the ways of God in nature would expect, 
and is what some of the most illustrious of the philosophic saints and fathers of the church have more or less believed in in saying that the doctrine of the evolution of species has taken its place among scientific beliefs i do not mean that it is accepted by all living naturalists for there are some who wholly reject it nor that it is held with equal conviction and in the same way by all who receive it for some teach it dogmatically along with assumptions both scientific and philosophical which are to us both unwarranted and unwelcome more accept it with various confidence and in a tentative way for its purely scientific uses and without any obvious reference to its ultimate outcome and some looking to its probable prevalence are adjusting their conditional belief in it to cherished beliefs of another order one thing is clear that the current is all running one way and seems unlikely to run dry and that evolutionary doctrines are profoundly affecting all natural science here you remark that your objection is not so much to the idea of mediate creation as to the form it has assumed that the mediate production of species may indeed be completely theistic but that whereas their immediate creation directly asserts divine action their incoming under nature only implies it to those who already believe in a supreme being the two views may religiously amount to the same thing but you continue living beings were thought to afford a kind of demonstration of a supernatural creator science in taking this away leaves us only the assurance that if we bring the idea of god to nature we may find nature wholly compatible with that idea well what is lost in directness may perhaps be gained in breadth and depth it is certain that the whole progress of physical science tends in respect to divine action to consider that mediate general and in a sense indirect which had been thought to be immediate and special youth is ever taught by instances manhood by laws you go on to say the evolution of species now so commended to us by science not long ago seemed as improbable to scientific as to ordinary minds what assurance can we unscientific people have that science will not reverse its present judgments none perhaps except that while many particular judgments have been reversed or altered the general course of thought has run in one direction and theologians like naturalists must be content with the best judgments they can form upon the present showing and be ready to modify them upon better finally and to reach the present point you pertinently commend to scientific men their own saying quote, science asks of everything how it is a part of the system of nature of the chain of cause and effect an hypothesis must give the how and why and from its own resources before it is worth attending to a credible hypothesis should assign real and known causes and ascertain their actual operation somewhere before assuming their operation everywhere a complete hypothesis should assign not only real but sufficient causes for all the effects and when it assumes them in invisible and intangible forms such as molecules and molecular movements it is bound to show that all the observed consequences flow from the assumption now to declare that species come through evolution without either proving it by facts or clearly conceiving the mode and manner how is only supporting a thesis which was until lately deemed scientifically improbable by hypotheses of a kind which have always been regarded as invalid just here darwinism comes in with a modus operandi in which lies all its essential value as the conception of the derivation of one form from another is the only distinctly pointed alternative to specific supernatural creation so the principle of natural selection taken in its fullest sense is the only one known to me which can be termed a real cause in the scientific sense of the term other modern hypotheses assign metaphysical vague or verbal causes such as development anticipation laws of molecular constitution without indicating what the special constitution is none of which have much advantage over the nisus formativus of earlier science i have no time to recapitulate what i briefly said of natural selection in a former lecture 
nor to analyze the applications of the principle by Darwin, Wallace, and others to critical instances, nor to specify its limitations and apparent failures. The discussion or even the presentation of these would fill the hour and divert me from my particular task. Instead of this, I will merely give my impression of the present state of the case as respects the points now before us. You will remember the distinction which I pointed out between the principle of natural selection, which I take to be a true one, and the Darwinian hypothesis founded on it, which I take to be, to a considerable extent, probable. That is, I think that the influences and actions which the term natural selection stands for give a sufficient scientific explanation of the way in which smaller differences among plants and animals may rise into greater, varieties into species. Given differences and an internal tendency to differ more, i.e. given variation as an inexhaustible factor, and natural selection should suffice for the preservation and increase of the select few as a consequence of the destruction of the intermediate many. Surely there is nothing either improbable or irreligious in the idea that lines of individuals or races, once in existence, should be subject to the conditions of nature, and that the fittest for particular conditions should thereby be preserved. As to variation, that really occurs as a fact, though we know not how and if we frame explanations of the mode and get conceptions of the causes of the variation of living things still we probably shall never be able to carry our knowledge very much further back for in each variation lies hidden the mystery of a beginning we cannot tell why offspring should be like unto parent how then should we know why it should sometimes be different so then darwinism has real causes at its foundation viz the fact of variation and the inevitable operation of natural selection determining the survival only of the fittest forms for the time and place. It is therefore a good hypothesis so far. But is it a sufficient and a complete hypothesis? Does it furnish scientific explanation of, i.e. assigned natural causes for, the rise of living forms from low to high, from simple to complex, from protoplasm to simple plant and animal, from fish to flesh, from lower animal to higher animal, from brute to man? Does it scientifically account for the formation of any organ, show that under given conditions, sensitive eye-spot, initial hand or brain, or even a different hue or texture, must then and there be developed as a consequence of assignable conditions? Does it explain how and why so much, or any, sensitiveness, faculty of response by movement, perception, consciousness, intellect, is correlated with such and such an organism? I answer, not at all. The hypothesis does none of these things. For my own part, I can hardly conceive that anyone should think that natural selection scientifically accounts for these phenomena. Let us here discriminate. To account scientifically for phenomena, or for complex series of phenomena, by assigning real and sufficient natural causes, is one thing. To believe that the phenomena have occurred in the course of nature, and have natural causal connection, is another. It is not natural selection which has led Mr. Darwin, and many others, to believe that life was originally breathed by the Creator into a few forms or into one, and that the production and extinction of the past and present inhabitants of the world has been due to secondary causes. But it is the observed fact of likenesses and that of gradation from form to form which suggested the idea of an actual evolution from form to form having somehow taken place. Variation and natural selection are now assigned as causes or reasons of the evolution. Variation originates all the differences. Natural selection determining which forms shall survive, reduces their number and intensifies their character. But Darwin may likewise consistently speak of his favorite principle as a cause of the evolution, it being that in the absence of which the evolution could not take effect. A cause of variation it certainly is not, but it is a necessary occasion of it, or of its progress. Because without natural selection to pave the way, the wheels of variation would at once be clogged, and all progress be arrested. 
Variation provides that upon which natural selection operates. The operation of natural selection makes room for further variation, gives opportunity for variability to change its fashions and display its novelties, and so the two go on hand in hand. But although thus conjoined, there is always this difference between the two, that natural selection works externally, with known natural agencies and in the light of common day, variation works internally, in darkness, and its agencies and ways are recondite and past finding out. Or, when we find out something, as we may hope to do, we only resolve a before unexplained phenomenon into two factors, one of them a now ascertained natural process, the other a something which still eludes our search. But we suppose it to be natural, although as yet unknown. Surely we are not to suppose that natural agencies cease just where we fail to make them out. To proceed, what Darwinism maintains is that variation, which is the origination of small differences, and species production, which represents somewhat larger differences, and genus production, which represents still greater differences, are parts of a series and differ only in degree, and therefore have common natural causes, whatever these may be, and that natural selection gives a clear conception of a way in which continually or occasionally arising small differences may be added up into large sums in the course of time. This is a legitimate and on the whole a good working hypothesis. The questionable point is whether the sum of the differences can be obtained from the individually small variations by simple addition. I very much doubt it. I doubt especially if simple addition is capable of congruously adding up such different denominations. That is, while I see how variations of a given organ or structure can be led on to great modification, I cannot conceive how non-existent organs come thus to be, how wholly new parts are initiated, how anything can be led on which is not there to be taken hold of. Nor am I at all helped in this respect by being shown that the new organs are developed little by little. The doubt is not whether the organs and forms were actually evolved in the course of nature. I agree with Darwin that they probably were, and if so, then doubtless under natural selection. And I cannot help thinking that Darwin would agree with me that the principle of natural selection does not account for it. That is, we both account for it all only by assuming as an inexplicable fact that variation does occur to the whole extent of the extreme differences. All appears to have come to pass in the course of nature, and therefore under second causes. But what these are, or how connected and interfused with first cause, we know not now, perhaps shall never know. Now views like these, when formulated by religious instead of scientific thought, make more of divine providence and foreordination than of divine intervention. But perhaps they are not the less theistical on that account. Nor are they incompatible with special creative act, unless natural process generally is incompatible with it, which no theist can allow. No Christian theist can eliminate the idea of divine intervention any more than he can that of divine ordination. Neither, on the other hand, can he agree that what science removes from the supernatural to the natural is lost to theism. But the business of science is with the course of nature, not with interruptions of it, which must rest on their own special evidence. Still more, it is the business of science to question searchingly all seeming interruptions of it, and its privilege to refer events and phenomena not at the first but in the last resort to divine will. Moreover, special creative act is not excluded by evolutionists on scientific ground, is not excluded at all on principle, except by those who adopt a philosophy which antecedently rules out all possibility of it. Darwin postulates one creative act, and a probability of more, and so in principle is at one with Wallace and with Dana, who insist on more. But it has been said, and indeed is said over and over, even by thoughtful men, that although Darwinism is not necessarily atheistic, yet, when once started, it dispenses with further need of God. 
given it is said the laws which we find then there is no more use for god and all things have come out as we find them with none of his supervision there may have been we do not know a god once but law and not god is the great creator a few words should dispose of this first by what right is it assumed that the darwinian differs from the orthodox conception of law in the next place this line of argument applies equally to a series of creative acts separated by intervals during which it could with the same reason or unreason be said that there is no use for god that there may have been a god at times so it cuts away the ground from under the christian evolution which the writer quoted from allows as well as from that which he deprecates and it equally dispenses with use for god in nature for the several thousand years which have passed since creation under the biblical view was finished and the creator rested from all the work which he had made there is no more validity in the argument in the one case than in the others a word or two upon the subject of creative acts occurring in time may not be out of place these when spoken of in the present connection do not usually refer to the making of a new form of plant or animal instanter out of the dust of the ground however it might have been when there was only one act of creation to think of the enormous crudeness of such a conception when applied to a long succession of animals would now be seriously felt by every one it is a phrase most used by those who accept the idea of the evolution of one species from another but who feel the utter incompetence of known natural causes to account for it in the absence of such causes they being theists naturally and i cannot say unphilosophically assign the simpler and seemingly easier part of evolution to recondite natural causes which they are unable to specify the more difficult or inscrutable to a diviner and more direct or supernatural act which they liken to creation i suppose they do not feel the necessity as they have not the ability to draw any definite line between what they think mere nature may accomplish and what they believe she cannot probably what they have in mind is mediate creation and not miracle perhaps they are convinced that if they could behold the birth of a species they would see nothing more miraculous than in the birth of an individual they mean that the springs of nature are somehow touched by a new form or instance of force directed to some new end yet so they must be in a degree in the origination of a new race or variety this whole conception of mediate creation is logically carried out to its extreme by my philosophical colleague professor bowen when he concludes that quote, not only every new species but that each individual living organism originated in a special act of creation close quote. so the difference between pure darwinism and a more theistically expressed evolution is not so great as it seemed both agree in the opinion that species are evolved from species and that evolution somehow occurs in the course of nature darwinism opines that the whole is a natural result of general causes such as we know of and in a degree understand such as we recognize under the concrete terms of variability heredity and the like terms which we can estimate and limit only by reference to what we see coming to pass along with complex physical interactions which are more measurable and predictable the very much that it has not accounted for by these causes and processes it assumes may be in time accounted for by them or by as yet unrecognized general causes like them the specially theistic evolution referred to judges that these general causes cannot account for the whole work and that the unknown causes are of a more special character and higher order i think it does not declare that these are not secondary causes and whether they would be ranked as natural causes would depend upon the sense in which the term nature was at the moment used probably such evolutionists if they had to give form to their conceptions would vary in all degrees between the direct interposition of a supernatural hand at certain stages or crises and that extreme extension of the supernatural into and through the natural 
which Professor Bowen reaches in the assertion that each individual living organism as well as every new species originated in a special act of creation. This, the complete assimilation of specific to individual origination, is simply Darwinism expressed in less appropriate language. What the one calls special act, the other, along with the rest of mankind, calls general process. The common principle of the divine ordination of nature, which the philosopher here asserts in a paradoxical way, the Darwinian implies, or even postulates, on appropriate occasions. The Darwinian naturalist, I mean, not the monistic and agnostic philosopher, from whom, so far, we have kept as clear as has Mr. Darwin in every volume and every line. End of Lecture 2, Part 1